Why settle for just living a good life when you can live a life optimized to achieve your human potential? Learn all the hacks that will transform your life from average to extraordinary. Welcome to Life Optimized with functional medicine expert, Dr. Neil Palvin. Hey guys, um, Dr. Neil Paulvin here again for another great episode of Life Optimized, where you learn tips and tricks on how to optimize your health, life, and have fun. So we're here today. I'm honored to be joined by Blake Eastman, the founder of the Nonverbal Group. The Nonverbal Group is a company that has been around uh, that helps both entrepreneurs and poker players understand human psychology, understand how interact with people on how to read people. I'll let Blake explain exactly what he does. He has a very unique background. He's a psychology major professor at NYU, correct? CUNY. CUNY. City University. Yeah. University. And now has developed that into the nonverbal group, which is based in Austin. They have developed that into special niches and again, into for executives as well as poker players. I know there was use association with them uh, in Vegas for a while as well. So Blake, thanks for hopping on. Give us a detail um, of what the nonverbal group is, what its niches are, how it helps people develop their skills. Yeah. So, I mean, we have sort of taken this approach that you can learn everything. I mean, you can go out and you can get training in terms of how to be more fit uh, or how to be more in every area of life. I feel like training has become more robust, but when it comes to social interactions, they're too basic to be highly effective. So the sort of focus of the nonverbal group is really going into a specific social interaction or social dynamic, recording everything that's going on and breaking that down to actual data and then using that data to help people navigate a certain interaction or a certain workflow. So for example, like I started, I did a study like 12 years ago on dating where we recorded people on a blind first date. They came in, we recorded them from multiple angles, then broke down their behavior. And what we found is that the people that were able to read and react to behavior in real time were the most effective dates. And then we started to seeing this across multiple industries and we've done a wide range of things. I'm probably most known for Beyond Tells, which is the largest behavioral study ever conducted on poker players. So we recorded poker players. Our first study was like seven or eight years ago. And we did things like manually counted every single time someone blinked over like 580,000 blinks and then showed how that can be used to reverse engineer what a player may potentially have. Actually, you know, the funny thing about that is blinks were largely not the most useful thing. Like I went down that, I wouldn't, if I were to advise my younger self, I wouldn't have done that. But now we're using primarily machine learning, specifically computer vision to do this at scale. So all the stuff that we used to manually code, we now use machines to. And essentially what we're doing is like, I could put someone through a series of tests, a series of batteries, and I could sort of understand the underlying behavioral patterns that create the perception in society for them. So this has turned into like working with a lot of executives who maybe rub their team the wrong way or aren't able to create cohesion. There's patterns in behavior that elicit that. And that's what we've gotten really good at extracting. So the moral of the story, first of all, do never play poker with Blake. Well, on top of this, is, was, is a professional poker player. But now that you're going to be able to read every tell, never lie, you're not going to get anywhere with anything with Blake. So but I'm reading your profile and let's take, I want to take up a couple of steps back. So mm-hmm. where did all this start from? I, mean, I know you, had, you were into forensic psychology and a poker player. I don't know which came first. But how did this interest in this niche come from? Is it something you've had as a kid that started in college? Yeah. Like endeavors? 
So it's something that I've always been, I had a lot of anxiety when I was a kid. I'd say like on an anxiety scale, like from like one to 10, I think I was like a stable seven and a half for the bulk of my social interactions up until age, probably like 21. And my way of calming myself down was paying hyper attention to people. It always felt like I was able to sort of control the dynamic. But honestly, all of this came a frustration with academic research, to be honest with you. So like, there's two sort of pivotal moments. Like one, it was either a NIDA or an NIH study in grad school. And like they had these scripts that I'd have to read to felons. Like it'd be like, hi, my name is Blake Eason. I'm a graduate student at the University of New York. I'm here to do a study. Da, 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 da. And like the hit rate or the success to get them to fill out the surveys or assessments was something like 5% or like nobody would do. Everybody would tell you basically like screw off and go away. So I started just approaching these people like humans. And I listen, man, I got this stupid assessment and I started to manipulate the dynamic in a way where somebody would be, and I still followed confidentiality and all the rules, but I did it in my way and I crushed it. Like I got more assessments that day than anybody else did. And I was like, wow, like that was an interesting dynamic in the sense that I didn't follow the rule book and I was able to connect with people at a higher level of success. And then the second thing was in grad school, I, I want to do this research and I said at the time I was playing poker and I wanted to self-fund the research. And they were like, you can't, you have to apply for a grant. And I was like, this is silly. Like I can just pay with it with cash. Or like, that's just kind of like how it works. We want you to go through the process of like applying for a grant and seeing what grant writing's like and da, da, da. And that was the second thing that I was kind of like, this is kind of stupid. Like, I just want to do my own research. I don't really need to be published. I don't really need to do all that stuff. So between those two things, it started where I was like, all right, let's do the first study. And I was very interested in the power of video. I still am. I believe that video is the only objective reality because you know, I show five people the same video. They all have different meaning or they take different meanings from it. But like raw behavioral data is like pure. So just got really interested in that. And then essentially remember Groupon and Living Social back in the day, like 10 or 11 years ago. Yes, I'm going to guess yeah. very much so, yeah. So I was like, I did very well on that platform. So I had this course called Body Language Explained and it sold like thousands of tickets. So like every night for like three or four years, people were coming to my classes and that led to consulting and that led to presentation training. And then I just started to, I'm the kind of person that maybe to coach myself in the back wasn't the best business owner. I just liked, I got very interested in things. So like I work with medical practices on optimizing workflows of doctors. I spoke at hospitals. I've worked at the biggest hedge funds in the world, private equity. I mean, like I bounced around from area to area to area because I was just so interested in the uniqueness of the social dynamic. I even went, one of my favorite ones back in the days, I went watch shopping for a watch company and like went and bought watches all around New York City to optimize like the sales process on how that works. So that was still a lot of fun. Yeah, that yeah, was fun. That was fun. Um, the central through line is that there's sort of this theory and there's this application in life, right? And in a lot of organizational consulting and a lot of coaching and a lot of communication. But the thing that is the major gap is behavior. So people forget the behavioral element and that's the real-time dynamic element. That's So we're trying to bring more of a behavioral-based approach back into human interactions and behavior. So I'm going to hit on two things. First, you mentioned how the video is the main reality. Is that because everybody has a different response to it? Is that because you, with your training and I, you're going to notice something specific that you can use to help and or evaluate that person? What makes video that the best medium for you to use in evaluating people? That's a really good question. Okay, so first and foremost, video is the most effective tool as a coach or as an educator, because people can't 
argue or dispute with me. So like when I was younger, I'd be working with like these, you know, some of these head fund managers, a little rough around the edges, like used to being nobody says no to them kind of thing. And I'd record them. And then to get them to really listen, I'd show them the video of themselves. And I was like, is this how you want to show up? Because if it is, I, I can like, there's nothing you need to say. And most people, when they watch themselves, especially in tough interactions, they that oh shit like they just look at themselves and they they never you know how you think you're showing up and how you actually are showing up are usually disconnected and video solves for that so that's the first thing the second thing is i don't think you can like learn to read body language and behavior from a book like we're fundamentally wired to connect the amount of cognitive processes that go on when watching a video is a lot different than when imagining the physical behavior of what's going on so we can establish and build, build feedback loops. Like, so for example, if somebody was like, if somebody was coming across as too, uh, let's say they want to know what assertion looks like, like you could explain all the mechanics of assertion, or you could show that person 93 examples of what assertion looks like across three different industries and three different cultures, and you'll see the trends. So I believe that for most people, and you know, I've worked with people on spectrums, which is complicated, everything from like people that have nonverbal learning disorders that are a facet of ADHD or, um, you know, it's, it, it can get quite complex on the reasons of why people don't pay attention to others. Uh, but I'm, so, so for example, the one that I'm thinking about is like, I had a client years ago that had ADHD and had a nonverbal learning disorder. And like, I would show her videos that were like, should have been blatantly obvious, like two people interacting and one person is clearly offending the other person. And she would watch the video and she would be like, well, why, why is this person offended? Like she clearly wasn't able to see that norm. And like, this is the thing. So reading behavior, a lot of people think it's about like, you know, uh, smiles and little things. Like it's not really what you're doing is you're reading a person within a context of invisible social norms. That's the trick. Like there's all these social norms and social pressures and things that occur that people don't even know exists. And that's why they struggle in social interactions. It's not like, oh, they're the, the person crossed their arms or the person that like, it's infinitely complex. And one of the interesting things is that people that are able to navigate social interactions with a high level of sort of competency are able to, they know those social norms so most of what I'm teaching is not the physical, it's the invisible, which is pretty wild. It's like, um, and there's so many examples of that throughout my like career of like, of going in reverse engineering, what are the norms and then reconstructing how to navigate that. And this has become more and more, especially on every facet of life now, be it mm. if you're on TV, you want to have certain behaviors that you want to modify, you don't want to be nervous, you want to have promote confidence. And if you're an entrepreneur, I mean, we both are in, do a lot of in the entrepreneurial space, like you said, or they're very confident. They know what they want. They think they're great at everything. So what can you, with monitoring their behaviors and analyzing and, and using the skill sets that you can teach people, what can they use these for? And then are there certain things where you, people have come to you and said, I want to be able to master this, this, and this. And you're like, look, I just can't do that. That's got to be innate. I mean, there's certain things that, I mean, obviously you can't tell is there certain things you can't do by changing somebody's behavior or giving them tricks to that? That's a really good question. Okay. So this is a multifaceted answer. So first step, most of what I do before I teach skill sets is remove skill sets. Like specifically with entrepreneurs and leaders, there's a lot of, they think they need to show up a certain way. And that's the thing that makes them weird. 
So they need, for example, they're like, oh, I need to be more professional on a TV show. So they show up more professional and they just come across looking weird. And like what people do is they don't go, oh, you know what? Like this is probably their first interview. They're probably a little bit anxious. They're probably like, they don't think about the context. They just go, that person's weird. (laughs) Like that's just sort of how we process things. And the real interesting thing is everything is a facet of perception. So like, this is one of like the philosophical things I always think about the difference between you know, perception and reality, right? So I can tell you sort of the behavioral themes and trends that will create a perception of confidence in someone. So like I could coach someone to look confident in under like 20 minutes, but then what happens is it goes away because the reality is, is they're not confident. So a lot of what we try to do is first like address the underlying like bigger mindset principles before adding in any sort of behavior. But sometimes a lot of the stuff I help people with is just little like inconsistencies and incongruencies. Like, so for example, last night I was looking at a, so one of the cool things when I work with people, I get a lot of Zoom interactions. I was looking at this video of uh, one of my clients who's the CEO of a big company and he has had some issues that like 360 assessments have said that he's like difficult to work with. He doesn't pay attention, so on and so forth. And one of the things he does is while he's on zoom, he's always like doing three other things. Like he's never actually like in the conversation, he's always doing three things. So he's like either checking spreadsheets or checking text messages or like he's all over the place. So I explained to him that like, you know, most of his team, a lot of this perception is coming from the fact that he doesn't listen. And I'm like, you don't listen because you're in three different, he's like, no, I'm listening. I'm like, but they don't perceive you to be listening. So like last week we instituted a couple of things where if he's on a call, as another thing, if you're a leader or if you're a, you know, you run a team, if you're on a meeting and you're so distracted on the meeting, you probably shouldn't be in the meeting in the first place. A, you shouldn't be there or B, it's just the meeting might be below what you're trying to accomplish in an organization. So I had him start off the beginning of the week telling everybody this. So he started off, he said, hey, everyone, like my coach just brought up this thing where I look all over the place. Even though I think I'm listening, I'm probably not listening. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to make the meetings a little bit shorter and I, you have my full attention. I just want to you know, genuinely apologize for that. And you see everybody's face on the call like, oh, okay, okay. And by the end of the week, we got so much good feedback. He got so many messages like, you seem like a different person. You seem like this. So sometimes what I'm doing is looking at, like, I know the things people will make meaning out of and it's hedging it and coming up with reasons on why that's not going to impact the sort of dynamic. So you hit on two cliches that actually, I think you show the why they're cliches. First of all, perception's reality. I mean, I know I was at my wife and I were at an event yesterday these are famous actors on a panel and you can tell which ones are really comfortable and, and telling the truth and just speaking from the heart. And some that had a press coach just say, okay, this is mm-hmm. what you're going to say. And these are the questions. And we're kind of just saying it wrote and you know, I mean, you can, what I'm perceiving is my reality and how, how I'm going to view that person in the future and who I would ever want to associate with and who I'm not. So it's not what I think. I mean, in my head is what everybody else around me, be it my employees, be it my social circle, it's how they perceive me. And that's why, again, going back to what you said initially, I guess now I'm learning more and more that video thing where you can A, show me and then I can understand it better. Because if you just tell me and say you're you're standoffish or you're in 17 different places, you're like, eh, whatever. I mean, I know I, I say some people do it to me all the time. They'll tell me something I don't do it. And then they'll show me or kind of point me an example. And I'm like, okay. It clicks. So again, mm-hmm. I think that's the first thing. And then something I want to, you brought up in what you just said, I want you to elaborate on a little bit is, again, everybody knows like, in, the importance of a first impression. So is it with what you, the example that you just gave, 
do you you need to kind of give in a little bit, show your own sac that's like the general the entrepreneur you're referring to kind of sacrificed or said, look, I know kind of un- made an apology. Like I understand I'm doing this. Let's do this to make it work better. There's other ways to spin things that you can almost get your own new first impression. Oh, hundred percent. I mean, like have a. I hate to say it. And when I say it, I don't mean it to, and to be derogatory. I mean, me too. Like humans, we are such sheep. Like we just really are like, we're so victim of the same themes and the same perception, just like switching the language on how a study is articulated. Cause it makes people believe it more. Like I could just make things up and most people would just be like, all right, I believe it. Like, you know, like it's just kind of, it's crazy. It's crazy how much that is a facet. And I think what people don't understand is that you have a lot more power to control the narrative around you if you control the context. So there's this sort of thing where it's like behavior context Y is a model we use to explain behavior. Like we look at behavior, we absorb the context and we come up with a reason why, right? So for example, with that CEO or COO, people are watching his behavior And they were often making the why they're making like a fundamental attribution error and making the why about him. Like he doesn't really care about me or he's not really interested in this project. When in reality, he was just doing three different things. That's occurring all the time. So what I tell people is the way to take control over things is to take control over your behavior. So like, for example, like I I had one client that had really difficult eye contact problems, like was always looking like all over the place and was like a little bit, I would say like borderline Like if you did like a skit, like a borderline manic in a lot of interactions and for his team and for the people that he worked for, it created this, like, he's this mad genius, but he's also fundamentally not safe. Like he's not stable. He's not like all these things. And what we had to do is create like this speech, like the speech that explained his behavior, that contextualized his behavior, contextualized his mission. And every new hire that worked with him had that conversation. So like some people, like I've had people say that like, oh, it's much easier for me to pay attention to what someone's saying if I don't look at them. And it is, it's true cognitively. Like if you close your eyes, you can probably pick up on more nuance in the voice and so on and so forth. But every time he'd speak to somebody, he'd be like looking off into oblivion. So people would perceive that as being like, he doesn't, he's not interested. So the whole point is just the whole joke of this is with greater communication comes greater ability to sculpt your narrative, but people don't want to do that. So they just, they sort of stay quiet. Um, and that's like the quickest fix, like instead of changing the behavior, create a narrative around the behavior. Like I, I told a story of where I work with this branding executive that was literally like, he was so all over the place. Like he could, he like had his keys in his hand. He's like talking to me, he's like looking around in every direction. And he's like, he just seems like this mad genius kind of person. And he was giving a presentation and they're like, is there anything you can do? And I was like, no, like this person needs this is going to take a long time. And I need like, I need to work with several people to like focus on this. And then I had this sort of realization. And I was like, you know what? I have an idea. And I was like, what you're going to do is you're going to call the company and you're going to tell them you're sending over the Leonardo da Vinci of our organization. He's a little bit weird. He's a little bit crazy, but he's an absolute genius. And they said that and they're like, okay, okay. So that when he gave the presentation and he was all over the place, all they saw was genius. They didn't see a lack of clarity. They just saw what we positioned him for. And he was a genius. Like he was just like creative person that would, you know, go on these 48 hour benders and work on something. But so it's all about sculpting the narrative. And most people, they don't do that. Like they just show up. Perception again, perception is reality. It is. It really, really is. 
And then kind of the summer, kind of another question leads with what you've been bringing up is, has the fact that everybody's on social media, everybody's posting on TikTok and they all want to either they're doing the same trend or they don't want to say anything offensive or they want to look cute. Is that everybody going to have that same mentality? Don't want to be different. Don't want to, they feel they're supposed to be doing certain thing. Has that made your, how we behave worse, better? Or do we have a social media mindset that our brain thinks that way? Has that affected how you do your job? The, fa- uh, the obsession with the phone and social media? So I believe that one thing where humans are incredible at is like adaptation. Like we're these incredible creatures that can just adapt, 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 adapt. I think that the impacts of social media are more likely to hit like 20 to 40 years from now. I think the technology and the innovations and stuff that's coming are going to be fundamentally disruptive with like uh, VR and AR and XR, like that whole world is going to change. But you know, what we see on social media is just really how humans have been behaving forever. Like conformity is like such a standard way of behaving and wanting to be part of the pack and wanting to belong to a tribe. And all these things are just personified and scaled because it's social media. And then like, also like you see, you know, feedback loops might change for kids where like, we tend to do things that work. So if, like for me, I want to post a video on like the underlying mechanics of behavioral reconstruct. Like I want to do something advanced, but I know that what's going to work is like the top three tips. Like, so there's this sort of feedback you gotta have a hook. doing that. You yeah, have you a got, hook. you you do. And you have to come up with like a crafty way of sort of making it work. But I don't, yeah, I don't think people, I mean, the thought of picking up your phone at a dinner, even I'm 37, right? So like, even if I was at a dinner, the restaurant would have to get me when I was younger, like 16 or 15 or like I had a beeper, right? Like if somebody, if the waiter came over and said, excuse me, Blake, you have a phone call. It would be like, oh my God, like what happened? Right now, the thought of taking a phone call or something, it's absolutely, it's second nature. It doesn't matter. So I don't really think, listen, the people that I've worked with people that complain about it, like, oh, we're in this society and we're this, like we're in what we're in. And you need to find the best way to navigate that and not be triggered and not be so reacted by it. So where is, uh, I know this is one of your fields. So where's machine learning and AI going to, to help us be able to A, understand behavior, change our behavior, change our relationships. And as also, is that coming soon? Is that something 20 years down the road? And um, where's that going? Where's the uh, AI going with with all this? So, I mean- I believe that a lot of people that have been using AI and machine learning have been going down the wrong path. And when I say that is, you know, they're using it for sentiment analysis, for like recognizing and understanding emotions. And in all my training and emotional training is useful, but there's other steps that are a lot more useful. And that's what I'm sort of pioneering and shifting. I think that in the next, so for example, I will tell you for sure, for certain the direction that I'm going in five years, I don't think any of my training will be video-based. It'll all be XR and AR-based. So for example, like I could have somebody wear glasses and in real time, glasses could pick up the patterns on people's facial displays and it could allow people to cue into like what potentially might be going on. And it could be aided that way so that when you take off the glasses, it's sort of like a real-time assessment. Like that's definitely going in the right direction. I imagine a, a ton of social interactions or social dynamics, things like checking into a hotel, checking into a doctor, like all those things being aided by 
underlying technology that is able to read faces and perception. Like that's all coming. Like it's a lot of companies are looking at it. I have another, like my other spinoff company is called Behavioral Robotics that's specifically focused on this. Like, so I work with a lot of, but it's like the technology is not really there yet. We're talking about like three to five years out, but it's hard, right? So, you know, I think I'm like half technologist, half like rewilding kind of, we need to go back to nature. But I believe that fundamentally technology is a good thing. And if it's used the right way, and when everybody, let me I just go on a rant, like when the thing that separates us, like the thing that makes us different is technology. Like we invented the spear, which allowed us to like hunt from a distance and allowed us to collaborate. And like everything we're doing right now is a facet of collaboration, like people talking with one another. And I do believe that technology is going to make it easier, not harder for sure. But you're not going to get like, I don't think like, like lie detection, for example, there's never going to be like systems that can tell you if someone's lying or not. It's just not going to happen unless, really? yeah, no, it's, it's too much of a multifaceted process. I think there's going to be systems that are, you know, like you talk, so this is what happens. Like you talk to a CIA interrogator, for example, right? Like, and that uses the polygraph and a couple other things. Like the CIA interrogator is viewing behavior within a context that isn't like day-to-day life. A lot of what happens is like somebody, like lying is tricky because somebody can lie and you're like, you, they look weird, but it's because of the fact that they're embarrassed about what they're doing, not because they're lying about it. Like it's so multifaceted to get someone in a lie that a lot of the real lie detection methodologies are about back and forth discussions as opposed to just looking for some weird you know, signal or behavior that someone's lying or not. I'm just really surprised. All the technologies out there. I mean, again, I, we all see the shows where, hey, they just put a paper clip or a tack in their pocket and they yeah, yeah, yeah. take it out. I'm like, okay, we can fix this. And you're telling me that it's not that simple. We can it's figure out what you're simple. thinking. And now yeah. We- even fMRIs, man. Like even fMRIs are not that accurate at predicting whether someone's lying or not. It's because the theory is that when you're lying, there's a lot of theory. There's a lot of different theories about it, like cognitive overload and like arousal and so on and so forth. But like arousal is a difficult thing to produce. So we saw that in poker, right? We saw that in poker where like I would see players that have, all right, so I'll give you a concrete example of this. You'd think that somebody would have a higher level of physiological arousal measured with like uh, galvanic skin response, blood pressure, heart rate, like all these things, right? You'd think it would be connected with bluffing. But it's not always the case. So for me, for example, like I played three WSOP tournaments and went fairly deep in them and wore a device called the Empatica E4 that measures like a bunch of physiological arousal signs. And what I found is that like this is there's a nuance in poker where I experienced the most physiological arousal, not when I was bluffing or not when I had the best hand, but in the spots where I had a good hand or I had the best hand, but I could potentially be drawn out on. So somebody could potentially, and that's because I'm a control freak and I love controlling things. So that's like a nuanced example of physiological arousal and lying is 10 X more nuanced than that. And like a lot of the stuff that people cite, you know, there's like, oh, this study, that study, a lot of social scientific research is not always the best methodology wise. And a lot of like journalists and authors sometimes run with things that the actual academics are like, this is exploratory. This is just like basic, like, and they just run with it. So for people who don't know, WSOP is World Series of Poker and uh, yeah. one of the lead tournaments out there in the world. And I know you've done really successful. So being a poker player and having the friends of psychiatry, can you pretty much tell when somebody's not being forthright with you? I don't say that again, you might be able to have their line, but can you get a pretty, ga- are you a much better gauge of people than most people are? So I'd, yeah, I'd like to think of myself as 
I mean, I believe that this is a very raw talent, but like, I still get things wrong. I think this is the difference. So I have spent so many times talking to people and getting the true story and source of their behavior that like my decision tree is way more robust than the average person. So if I see somebody acting weird, I don't make meaning of it. I start to go through like, I wonder why they're acting weird. Like, I wonder if they're anxious. I wonder if they're nervous. And then I try to be the person that calms them down or soothes them to get to the answer. So like, I think most people are, you know, viewing someone or viewing an interaction and being like dismissing people too quickly, where I'm a little bit more interested, which gets me the, it's kind of an edge. It's like, allows me to connect, but also like, yeah, I can like, for example, follow, or I could give a presentation to 50 people and immediately tell you who doesn't like me at the end of the presentation. Like I can walk up to them and be like, you don't like me. You don't like me. You don't like me. You don't like, me. right. And, or you just have a lower level of facial display. Like people don't realize like how much they leak, but what I'm doing, a lot of it is like hyper new. So for example, so this is, this is like a deceitful thing, but like one of the things I'll do if I'm interacting with somebody that, I don't know, if I think they're trying to be perceived a different way, I don't do this often, but in the context of work, I sometimes do where I'll make something up. So like somebody's trying to come across as an expert in some area and I'll be like, Oh, like, have you heard of that study? Like, you know, uh, DePaulo 1990 that did that really cool thing where they measured the rats movement. And, oh yeah, 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 yeah. That was a great study. Da, 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 da. And when they latch on to that, I made it up. It doesn't actually exist. It doesn't mean that they're a liar, right? It means they are lying. But what it does mean is like, they don't have the social mechanisms to be comfortable, maybe not knowing. And this is not the kind of person that I'd want for that kind of role. So it's like, it's not making people wrong or, or, or this person's such a liar. Like human behavior is so complex. If you were to touch somebody and see what they've gone through, you, you'd have a lot more compassion for them. But it's just a litmus test of sort of like where, where they're at and how they're doing that. Yeah, no, I mean, I respect like, people who know their lane, know their niche and who know what they don't know. I, I respect much more. I mean, yeah. when, because if people, if people say they know everything about everything, you know, they're they're full of crap sometimes. And yeah, you got to be like, fun. I don't know. And also, so this is, this is interesting. This is an interesting story about perception, right? So like I was into a Lex Friedman podcast. And Lex Friedman's like one of my favorite podcasts. I just, I like awesome. the kind of conversation. Awesome. They're incredible. Um, I won't blast this person on air, but I will, I was listening to the podcast at the first, and this person was speaking with such confidence. Like there's no way that like just real confidence. And I, I really liked him and the things he was talking about, I knew nothing about. So I was like starting to agree with him. And Lex was a little bit more like, you know, devil's advocate and sort of let's draw man argument. Like he always does that. And I was like, no, I think this guy's right. So I'm listening for like an hour. I really like this guy. And then about like an hour and 10 minutes, he gets into my area. Things that I have a, like a high level of nuanced understanding about. He talks about a little bit about human behavior, a couple of psychology things. And I'm like, oh no, he's wrong with the same level of confidence. <laughs> so it's just kind of like, for me, I'm like, oh my God, like, can I not trust everything that's going, that was previously said? And that's one of my things. Like I if people are too confident in all domains, I'm like, it's not possible. Like you can't be like, there has to be, you know, stay in your lane. And there's nothing actually more as like a communication tactic. There's nothing more powerful than saying, I don't know, actually, like it's humbling and it's real. And it's like, but I'll find the answer. I have no idea. Like sometimes people, they raise their hand. Oh my God. Like they'll raise their hand. They'll ask me this crazy question. And I'll be like in front of the stage. And I'll be like, 
I have absolutely no idea the answer to that question, but like I could do some research and, and hopefully get you a response or it's something that I really have to think about as opposed to just answering. Like I said, I totally agree that that to me is the person I respect more and you know they're genuine. So you've kind of brought it up. So people who are very unique specializations, especially like you do, can you turn it off? Like if you're out on a Saturday night at a, at a party or some type of gathering, are you sitting there always evaluating people at your table? Or are you like, okay, I'm here to have a good time. That part of my brain is gone. Yeah. Or is it always just something you're doing? No, it's always happening. And it's not, it's not, a, so this is the thing. It's not evaluating, it's noticing. That's like the distinction I use. So I, I try, like, I'm not trying to make meaning out of things, but I will, like, it's like a clinical practice in the sense. So for example, my friend, Emily Kibbard, I don't know how to say her last name. She owned a, a practice know, in New York yeah, City. Do you know, know Emily? Yeah. She's like muscle fitness, whatever. She said like, she'll walk down the street and be like, oh, that person has this on a line or that person has that on a line. Like I will do that. Like I'll like be at dinner with person. And also the funny, my wife, Molly, who you know, like she's also really good at that too. So she's like, she can pull, pick out the nuance and sort of pick things up. But like, put it this way. The distinction is I'm not like a laser. I'm like a flashlight. So like, if you were to see inside my brain, it's not like, oh, I know that this person, like people like that are getting things wrong, but it's like, there's something not going on here or something not right. And the real trick is being able to like make a comfortable enough space or setting. It's like kind of my behavior and my interaction to get that person to tell me the reason what it is. Like, so I, an intern once walked in and he, he comes in and he, he looked absolutely terrified to meet me. And he's like, shakes my hand and his hand is like really sweaty. Right. And it's like, I don't want to create a dynamic where I want to get to know somebody with, um, while one person's super stressed and I'm in this like power dynamic. So I'm like, listen, man, like there's no reason to be nervous. There's no reason to be anxious. Like, and I had a conversation with him for 10 minutes, calming him down and getting to the point of where he's comfortable. Then we were able to have the interview. Like, that's the thing that I advocate for people. People just judge way too quickly. And there's a lot of like really incredible special people out there that are getting passed over on because of just some behavioral signaling that they're not aware of. And that's what I'm trying to like really change. I can imagine, I mean, I, I don't mind. I can imagine what you guys have conversations about dinner because you guys are just so perceptive about different things. His wife, Molly, is a really great uh, sleep podcast and sleep practice. Yeah. But I can imagine you guys are so evaluating little nuance. She's what you guys are thinking about looking at. It's, it's got to be intriguing. So one again, some, so if somebody comes to you, I know you mentioned earlier about the points of laying that foundation. So when you're dealing with somebody who's, let's just stay in the focus of on, on, in the entrepreneurial space, mm -hmm. is there one or two foundational things that you can tell somebody right away about how to improve their mindset and the, how people perceive them? Or is it something that's going to take multiple sessions to get there? No, it's quick. It's like in my first call with people, like I do like pretty high level coaching. And in my first call, like the first 45 minute to an hour call, I'm pretty sure of like what, and then things surprise me. I've worked with some entrepreneurs that are like, well, be very good at masking it and be like, oh, I'm just looking for that like next edge. And they're like missing foundational stuff. But usually in, yeah, in one hour discussion with them and a couple of analysis of videos, you're able to see themes. It's sort of like the quote, like how you are, uh, what is it? Like how you are here is how you are everywhere. Or like, you know, wherever you go, there you are. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. yeah. um, so like people will show up very similar to how they show up with their CEO, with their wife. And people like, people don't really realize that. And a lot of entrepreneurs, like the biggest thing with entrepreneurs is I have to sometimes so people come to me when things mess up. So like a board will be like, you have to work with Blake. 
like your team hates you. And like, that's kind of what'll happen, right? Like is that your, is that your niche now? They hate you, go see Blake. I mean, to be honest, like some, yeah, for a long time. Yeah. Like that was like the problem. I, I dealt with tough personalities, tough people, and they move so quick that they don't really think about the value of people. And I think a, a lot of our entrepreneurial culture, especially in the startup realm, it's kind of like this world of bullshit where people care that we care about people, but they don't really care about people. Like there's a difference between acting like you care and genuinely caring. And I've seen some like really some entrepreneurs that I'm like, uh oh, <laughs> like, and also it's just, you know, leadership is the highest. It's not easy. You know, there's a lot of these things like good and bad leaders. Like these people are pulled from five different directions. You know, they've, they've got a board, they've got a family, they've got a team, they've got expectations, they've got imposter syndrome, they've got all these things going on and they're expected to show up. And it's the hardest thing, but there are real skill sets and real things that you can do to sort of massively impact team co cohesion, how you're perceived. And it's a balance between mindset and like raw tactics. Like those are the, the so just sometimes the way, you know, some people send an email out and I'm like, how did you send that email out? Like, are you, and I don't say this to them, but I look at the email and I'm like, in the beginning of my career, I was like, how could somebody do this? Like, how could somebody send this email to 1500 people? This is insane. And then I sit down with them and I explain to them the impact of each line. And you see, they're like, oh, I didn't even realize that. That's not what I meant. And then you just feel compassion for people because you're like, they're not being rude or disrespectful. They just don't see it. So you're the, per I've, never, I've always wanted to ask somebody, I think you're the perfect person to ask this question. Is it true that I've heard that people, the more, the higher IQ somebody has, the higher intelligent they have, the less, I guess they call it emotional quotient, the EQ they have, they sometimes don't understand how other people see them because they think everybody gets it and is thinking that same pathway they are, or is that kind of a myth? I mean, uh, this is like, I would love to unpack this over the course of 10 hours. Like I just have, some, <laughs> oh, I have so many, so much opinions about IQ and how we test for it and like uh, all these things. Well, but yeah. I definitely think those two are correlated. I wouldn't be surprised if like high IQ is correlated with, but it depends on what we're measuring. And also it depends on our culture and our society that will like, if somebody has an I high IQ, they'll, they'll reward the competencies of that IQ and their feedback loop will be focused on the activities that are associated with somebody that has a high IQ. Like, um, but the reality is, listen, there's people listening to this podcast right now, like, and they will think that like, oh, this is cool. This is interesting, but like, I'm good in a social and they won't even realize that there's a whole other world. And that's why we call it like developing a social edge. Like most people are in, in social interactions to survive, not really to make it have an edge in social interaction. And there's all these like interesting studies about longevity and health and family and community and relationships and all how important that actually is. And I think a lot of unnecessary stress, anxiety, frustration, all comes from social interactions, not having the ability to communicate with one's wife, with one's team, with one's partner. And there's just tools that people can learn to make this more effective. And you need video and you need, so I'll tell you. So like in my program that I do, what's so wild is we take behavioral data. So you have, you go through this interaction with people. And as you talk to people, they're giving you anonymous feedback. We're pulling all the behavioral data. You're assessing yourself and my team's assessing you. So it's this comprehensive view of how you're perceived by like 80 people. Like that's eye-opening. Like, you know, I was just in a conversation with somebody a couple of weeks ago that I respect and, I, and he said that I came across as smug. And I was like, oh no, like that's not what I want to come across as. So like, 
what underlying tonality or what was occurring that made me feel that way. And that's all, one of the reasons why you can't ever trust an actor. Like if somebody's like a really good actor, like they have the ability to bend that so much. Like actors are the perfect example of everything I'm talking about. Like you watch a movie and you know, you watch Leonardo DiCaprio completely take on this other role. That's not him. That's him understanding society's understanding of behavioral nuance and tones and voices and facial gestures and all these things that create a narrative. Like they can't, you can't trust them. <laughs> it's like they're masters at it. And they're trained to stay in character to maintain oh, yeah. personality. So let's do that TikTok video. If the entrepreneur wants two, three foundational tips about TikTok, working their mindset, evaluating what they're doing. Are there two or three easy things that people can look at? Is it yeah. watch themselves on video? Is there a yeah. trick that they can kind of figure out where they are with that? Yeah, the most effective thing is to have a conversation with a friend where you have something called, it's like, I think it's called Rogers, like unconditional positive regard, which is a really great thing. It basically means like I can show up the way that I want to show up and I know that person's not going to leave. Like, so no matter what I do, if I go into the next room, no matter what I say to Molly, she's still going to be here tomorrow. Like that's unconditional positive regard, right? So you're free, you're comfortable, you're self-expressed. Record what you look like in that conversation. That is your likely to be most effective modality for um, TikTok. Like how you are natural. Because what happens is this, like if you think about efficiency, if you have to become someone else every time you make a TikTok video. It's cognitively demanding. It's all these things. And it also creates weirdness. Like, you know, everybody knows TikTok video of somebody that doesn't like the left side of their face because they only show the right side. Like, so you know that they're trying to hide that, right? And it's just so, if you look at the world-class like YouTubers and the people that have like insane followings, they're fundamentally themselves. And that's the first step, basically. And do you have tips that you give your clients on how to succeed? Is there something that everybody can do? Or is it literally different for everybody? That's the thing. I think everybody's got their own sort of nuance and brand and capacity. I'll tell you one thing. One of the common through points of working with every client is I'm always trying to develop range. So like if somebody's a really good listener and that's where they like to live, like they, they really are present and attentive. They may not be, or they may be, but they may not be really good at sort of rallying and the charismatic style of leadership. So we have to develop that. So I, I believe that the most effective communicators have a very wide range and they're able to access those tools for whatever circumstance comes. So if their team needs X, they can give X. If their team needs Y, they can give Y. And, and that range is like really critical. Is there a way that people can develop that range on their own? Is it just yeah. innate? Uh, I think some of the range is innate, um, but I do think it could definitely be developed. It usually requires like a balance, it, like self-expression and pushing your comfort zone almost always. Like, you know, I can't tell you the amount of clients I've recommended to do improv to get more comfortable in that sort of dynamic or various self-development modalities, like focusing on storytelling or focusing on, I mean, there's so many different avenues, but like wherever you're the most uncomfortable is probably the range that you need to develop. So going that uncomfortable, pushing yourself to that beyond that boundary, if it's shyness, if it's not interacting well, then like I know there are people who will talk, make sure they have a conversation with somebody every day because they're the, they're the loners, they're shy, they're very smart, but they just don't want to deal with anybody else. They force themselves to have meaningful conversations, come home and learn something about people, and they learn from that every day, and it makes it more normal to them. So it's you got to add more tools to the toolbox. 
Yeah. Like, so, so one of the challenges I did, it was really cool. So like, but this is the thing you have to add more tools, but there's two factors. There's adding the tools and then there's the real rejection and fear when it doesn't work. So you got to like handhold, like I would net most clients, like if somebody's like really anxious or something, I'm not like, yeah, go out and talk to hundred people, come back and you'll be fine. Cause they might likely quit at five. So like you need to meet the client or you need to meet the person with where they're at. So for example, I had a client that was like, didn't have that much anxiety, was like pretty assertive, but had a real hard time negotiating. Like it was a thing in their life. Like they had stuff from when they were a kid, they just hate negotiating. So we made this challenge. It was really, I still do this with people where you have to negotiate something every day and track it in a spreadsheet. So they were like, what do you mean? I remember this was in New York city. So like I left my office in New York city. I was like, let's go. So we walked, we first walked to the guy, the halal stand that I was always at. And I was like, watch. So I was like, and I ordered like a standard, like street meat from the hall guy. And he was like $6. And I was like, man, I come here literally once a week. Like, can we just do five from now on? And he's like, oh brother, it's expensive. I'm like, just, 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 all right, fine. How about you throw in a free Coke for $6, right? And he was like, all right, for you, buddy, diet Coke and the thing for $6. I gave him $6, right? And then we go to the water store and we're in the water store and like, the Poland Spring, I, I really re- vividly remember this. The Poland Spring is always $1.25. And it's annoying because you have $2 and you're not going to be right. So I was like, listen, man, I like this store across the street. It's a dollar. Here it's $1.25. Can you just give me a Poland Spring for a dollar from now on? And the guy is like laughing and he was like, all right, I'll give it to you for a dollar. I'm like, all right, great. But it was nuanced in how I was asking. It was like a very like New York City street style of interacting with someone. It would change if I'm negotiating a contract with a hedge fund, right? So there's nuance in that. So what I would make this person do for 30 days, they'd argue it. And I remember this particular individual like made like $8,000 in savings because it was such a fun game after that. And it was just cool. I'm being a New Yorker now for eight years after living in the burbs. I'm trying to picture that. I'm very impressed that you were able to pull that off because oh, yeah. I can see people yelling at you, throwing you out of the store. Oh no. It's just this assertion. Good, but. No, I mean, like I was born and raised in New York city. Like, I mean, there is, I think anybody that meets me for longer than 10 minutes knows I'm from New York, right? Like we just sort of speak our mind and we're just sort of a little bit more assertive. And, and I grew up in a family that really, celebrated that. So like my mother was very good at just being honest with me and being real with me. And it's powerful skill set. And also just, I mean, this is something I used to be afraid of asking for help and like asking things. And it's something I've been tapping into a lot. People would be shocked about how much opportunity, success, and value is legitimately one question away. Like it just, just ask. And worse comes to worse. So this is, this is all right, I'll, I'll, this is the last thing. Two, two, two big points I always talk about. One, you can never measure the ROI of a social interaction. Just have no idea like what is going to connect to what. And two, nobody really cares about you. So like, this has been my big realization. Like nobody cares. Like if you're, if you walk up to somebody and you know, you say something and they're like, who is this weirdo? And then they reject you. They're not going to remember. They don't remember who you are. Like no one cares. No one really genuinely cares. And when you understand that everybody's in their own head and they only care about the, most people just care about themselves. It's somewhat freeing in, in how you can socially interact. I mean, my mother always says you always, when you talk to somebody new, you ask them about themselves because they're in their own head. And then that's a way of ingratiating yourself. Then you can move on from there. hundred uh, percent. You're a poker player. I'm going to, I have to get, is there one tip that you would give every base beginner poker player 
um, mm. who's not at the World Series of Poker, just their Saturday night table game. If I had to, with that construct, if you're like the kind of person that's playing like your Saturday night poker game, I'll give two tips. One, you should definitely be folding more. And then two, never call, either fold or raise. That would be my like biggest sort of binary piece of advice. Uh, only call on position, basically. Fold or raise and only call on position. Yeah. Yeah, that would be the best advice. I'm sure you get asked every time you're out, hey, what should I do here? Was you probably like like I ask medical questions. Do you probably do you get asked more poker questions or do you get asked more So it's like, all right, I'll give you an analogy. So like poker is so nuanced. So like what's weird about poker and my experience with poker is like I used to teach people the difference between a straight and a flush. And then I work with the literally the best poker players in the world. So like in the sphere of poker players that I coach. I'm terrible compared to them. Like the edge is quite distinct, but against like a random group of people, like a home game, I have a massive edge in that group. Right. So it's so inherently relative. So what happens is it's kind of like as a doctor, I mean, you're my doctor, right? So like I go to you, like, but like, I am a little bit more updated on some of this, like, like I know what a peptide is. Right. So, but like, it's different if I don't even know what that is. So most of the time I'm having conversations with people that like, they're not in this conversation of poker. So they're like, oh, like I have ace king. Like, and you can just tell by the language, like just the things that they say, you're like, okay, I see where you're at. Just the same way that if I were to like bring up some health stuff, you're like, okay, Blake probably doesn't know this or Blake probably doesn't know that. So most people don't really understand how deep the rabbit hole goes with poker. And it is deep. It is like so deep. I know, and I will always be bad at it, and I just own it, and I just have yeah, fun. Yeah. I don't have time, or the, the do, I would love to go right. down the road, but I just can't do it. So again, I love appreciate you coming on some really great info. So where is Nonverbal Group heading? Where is Blake Eastman heading? And for the entrepreneurs out there, how can they find you? Reach out to you. Can they find? Are you? Do you have yeah. opening? So we, nonverbalgroup.com is the best. We have a, a couple of programs. I, I work privately with people in like 90 to 100 days, 20 day sprints. I work with teams. But the coolest thing is in on January 10th, we're releasing a program called The Social Edge, which is for everyone. And it's just going to be a wild experience on building social competency over the course of 90 days. And you'll meet some amazing people. All your videos will be recorded and deconstructed. And you'll just leave a, a completely different person and also there's just like a lot of stuff. Like what's cool about what we do is we're really like, I don't want to say holistic, but we're um, comprehensive. Like sometimes you wouldn't realize how I, last thing, like I work with once work with a client that didn't smile at work. He's the nicest guy, but never smiled. And like, we had all these back and forth discussions and I'm like, take me back to your childhood. Like, what was your dad? Like, he starts talking about his dad and he's, he smirks. He goes, you know what? I'm remembering this moment. And when he was 11, he like, his dad took him to work and he smiled. And his dad said, son, men don't smile at the workplace. Never smile again. You got to show you're strong. You don't want to show weakness. Like we're not women. Like that's what he said to him. And the son internalized that and he didn't smile. And nicest guy. And so sometimes you get these weird things that people, you know, you go through life and this event happens or some sort of trauma or something happens that changes the way people perceive or interact in the world. And you need some time and effort to go through that. And I think we're really good at doing that. Okay. So nonverbalgroup.com. Yep. Thanks again, Blake Eastman, for hopping on the Life Optimized podcast. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Thanks for having me. Whether you're an entrepreneur, a biohacker, or an athlete, if you're ready to take the next steps to optimize your life, visit drpaulvin.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com. That's D-O-C-T-O-R-P-A-U-L-V-I-N.com.